Good morning. How are we? That's a little weak for 11:15. How are we doing? All right. It's a little bit better. This side of the room got that. We'll get we'll get there. We got a little bit of time. Hey, um, let me introduce myself. My name is Trevor Joy. I'm one of the pastors of the Village Church in Flower Mound. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Been there 11 years and currently serve as a pastor overseeing uh, missions and church planting. So I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Courage Citizen Church. It's actually what's interesting is this week been really reflective of uh, just in general as I've been thinking about coming over here because Plano is where I was born and raised. I grew up. Uh, in fact, my parents lived in the same house for 35 years till they sold it this year. And I was thinking about, man, all the first that for happened to me here. I'm thinking about my first soccer game I ever played in was in the fields just right across the street. Uh, first time a girl ever turned me down to dance was in that community center right over there. And they used to have Saturday Night Plano, first of many uh, turndowns. But I think about I just uh, the, the pastor that planted this church. I went to school with his oldest daughter, and uh, his wife was my algebra teacher, poor soul. And, uh, the, but even more importantly, my faith journey began here as I was invited after a football practice my sophomore year. They said, hey, there's going to be free pizza in this little portable in the northwest corner of this church over off of Legacy. And so I heard free pizza. So me and several football players, we went. Campus Crusade was hosting a night, and Benton Hall shared the gospel with me, and that was where it all began for me. And so... Uh, grateful doesn't even do justice to the feelings of my heart for the fact that this church exists here in this place doing this work in this city for the glory of God. And so it's my joy to be with here and the opportunity to encourage the church. But I'm even more excited uh, as Citizens Church is no longer going to be a campus of the Village Church. It's going to be its own church. We're going to celebrate that next weekend together. Excited to be back for that. But excited to think about the work that we're going to continue to do together as we, what's going to remain is Uh, for us as churches, is how we cooperate together, we partner together to plant churches, both DFW and to the ends of the earth. And that's exciting to even just say out loud, but to see that happen in our lifetime is going to take radical commitment from us as individuals and us as churches. But I know it's possible because here's what I know to be true, and this will segue into really what I want to talk about this morning. What I know to be true is that we are capable of living in radical ways when we are caught up in something bigger than ourselves. I'm gonna give you a couple examples. The first one will be a little bit more of a funny one. I was taking my oldest son to his first Aggie game this past Thursday. Yeah, there it is, knew it was gonna happen. He's been prepared for that. And, uh, and so I was taking the first game, and so we knew several weeks ahead of time we were gonna be going, so he's asking tons of questions about it. And one of the things that we were, he was asking a lot about what, you know, what's the game like, what's the college station like, what's it gonna be like, and so I pulled out some old pictures uh, uh, back, back when I was in college. And praise God that cell phones were not around when I was in college. I don't think I'd have a ministry career if all the dumb things I did in college was captured on social media. Uh, but we did have a, a bunch of pictures. And I, so I pulled out a, a Tupperware full of old photos. You guys remember what those are, the printed things that we used to put in frames, not the digital ones, you know, the actual printed photos. So it was from Eckerd's. And I, I opened it up. And yeah, yeah this it just dates me. And... Uh, and so I'm looking through the photos, and I, I get to photos. I was looking for game day photos. And so I finally, I get to the game day photos, and it's, uh, it's me and my roommates. And we're standing in a row, and we're all wearing overalls, which is, that doesn't sound very odd to you, does it? Except what comes next. In the picture, I, and I just didn't remember this. And then I was like, okay, yeah, this happened. I, on the overalls, were, they were just decked out from head to toe in puff paint. And on that was all kinds of things. And I'm seeing some head shake, and maybe there's some other... Some other uh, shameful memories are going to pop it up. But that, that's what was on these overalls, head to toe, puff paint. We were, we were you know, 19-year-old guys dressing in overalls that were covered in all kinds of bright 
colors painted all around with all kinds of sayings and our class name, A&M. And we were decked out. And we, we didn't just wear these. We wore these out in public to the game. And there were 70,000 people in the crowd that saw us wearing these things. And we were standing with no shame, just cheering loud. And we wore them every game. And so what I remember explaining to my son, I was going, man, just two lessons to get from this. One, when you go to the Aggie game, there's going to be a level of fandom that you're never going to experience anywhere else in your life. And the second thing is, this is a really important lesson for you, just the lesson of really, really good and sincere friendship. Because what I obviously didn't have at college was committed friends that were going to prevent me from doing things that I would regret. So that, but for us, we didn't care. We were willing to be crazy. We were willing to dress in whatever it was because we were caught up in something so grand and so big is be an Aggie fan. And for those in the room that, that know it, you know. But even thinking of more sober examples, if you think back in our nation's history, you think back in the beginning of World War II, and you think about all that was going on in the world at that time, you think of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, what that stirred, the shockwave that sent across our nation. And it aroused our nation into war. And we, it was really, truly a battle of, of good and evil. And everybody was wanting to go to war. And one of my favorite miniseries is Band of Brothers. And one of the great things about that miniseries is that at the beginning of every episode, they do a, an interview with the soldiers that they're depicting throughout the movie. And in the first one, these soldiers are, are talking about the nation going to war and all these men lining to sign up. And everybody at home was, was joined in in some way, form, or fashion to support this war and what was going on and joining in the effort. And he talks about in his town, all the men lining up to go, everybody that could fight, everybody was of age was lining up to go. And they're lined up outside the office, military office to sign up. And you, know, you sign up and then do your medical, you know, physical check and all that to get cleared to go and fight. And he said he remembers this, this guy in his town that was signed up to go and fight and he went through his medical clearance and didn't get cleared to fight. And he was so devastated that he couldn't go with all the others to be a part of this war that the nation was caught up in. Uh, that he went home and ended his life because he couldn't, was so devastated he couldn't be a part of it. And he talks about then that there just wasn't, the nation was going to war. This is what we were all caught up in. And everybody was willing to drop everything, lose everything to go and be a part of this. It just wasn't even a second thought. And so both these things point to this really main theme that I want us to circle around this morning. And it's going to be up on the screen. I just want to read it to you. If there's one thing you're going to carry away this morning that I want us to see in the passage we're going to be in together, it's this point. That we have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we have been provoked by something great. I want you to hear that again. We have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we have been provoked by something great. We want a war to fight. We want an adventure to join. We want an epic story to be a part of. And we will give everything we have when we find it. Sometimes we try and ride our own through sports or work or money. Sometimes we try and join somebody else's epic story through relationships. Sometimes we try and live through the fictional stories that are marketed us through movies or media or popular culture. But all of those, we pursue all of that for the promise of satisfying that deep longing inside of each one of us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We'll go into debt. We'll compromise convictions. We will buy, sell, kick, scratch, and fight to fill that void of significance in our life. And from the outside looking in, and many of us look like we have it all or we have it together, but unfortunately, somewhere between believing and doing is the person we become in the process. That's going to be really important for us to understand. Somewhere between believing and doing is the person we become in the process. And for many of us, when we look at that space between what we believe and how we actually live our lives, we don't like what we see. Yet that 
that desire for wonder and awe and significance and greatness is in us. It's in you, yearning to be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 3.11 describes it this way when it says God's placed eternity on our hearts. We have an innate desire for our lives to be pointed towards and spent on something bigger than ourselves. But for some mysterious reason, there can be this giant gap between what we say we believe and how we spend our days. And we just don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to close that gap. I love this quote from Thomas Chalmers. He gives us an answer of how we close that gap. He says this, Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire for having some one object of absolute love is unconquerable. Did you catch that? The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire for having some one object of absolute love is unconquerable. And the only way to replace the affections of our heart is by the power of a greater affection. So my goal today really is simple, and I'm not trying to aim to convince you to sell your house and move overseas or something radical like that, though I'd be thrilled if the Lord moved in your hearts in that way. I don't want to condemn you with numbers, I really, really desperately want you to care about the over 400,000 people who live in Collin County right around this church who have rejected the gospel. And even for the 2.6 billion people that live among the nations that don't even have access to the gospel. Though both of those statistics should be plenty to move us, I don't want to start there. My hope is this morning isn't to try and convince you or condemn you into action. Instead, if it's true that we're willing to live radically when we've been provoked by something great, I just want to put something great in front of you. So I'm going to the best I can in my time and ability here to help us catch a glimpse of the majesty and the beauty of God of the heavens, that whatever object holds your attention of your life, your affection of your heart would be expelled. And instead, we would be provoked by the greatness and glory of our God and King. That whatever you're, however you're living your lives, wherever you're spending your affections, they would be replaced by a greater affection for the greatness of God and a life lived for the glory of God. And I absolutely believe with all of my heart that this can happen today. And this is why I want to spend our time in Isaiah chapter 6. If your Bibles, go ahead and start turning here. Because what we have in Isaiah chapter 6, and it'll be really familiar to most of you, is in this scene we have a beautiful example of what it means to be captivated as Isaiah is given a, a beautiful vision of God and it changes him. And as I was studying for this sermon, in the introduction of just one of the commentators, he just makes this very, very small point, this two-sentence statement that completely blew me away. And I knew what he said in the statement to be true, but I just didn't realize that I really needed to hear that. What he says in this, the commentator made this really small point, that this incredible scene in chapter Isaiah 6 that we're about to see, it wasn't salvific for Isaiah. He was already a prophet being used by God. So what we're seeing here is not the first time that Isaiah encounters the Lord, but it's a fresh encounter. And why I needed to hear that is I need to be reminded that there are fresh encounters with God to be had. There are powerful encounters with Jesus still in front of us, that wherever you find yourself today, whether you've been walking with Jesus for years or a brand new Christian, whether you're walking in a season of discouragement or things are really just going well, we can have a fresh and awesome encounter with the living God. 
And since we're willing to live radically when we've been provoked by something great, I know that all that has to happen for your life to take a turn towards the kingdom today is for you to catch a glimpse of the beauty, the majesty, the holiness, and the glory of God. That everything that we want to see happen in our lives individually, in this church corporately, will only come to pass when we're provoked by the greatness of the king. One of my favorite stories of this is in 1907 in Pyongyang, Korea, there were a group of missionaries that were asking the Lord for this very same thing. They had been working there tirelessly and faithfully for over 10 years without seeing a single convert to Christ. So they gathered in a room. They were beginning to grow weary, discouraged. They, stu- they were stuck. They couldn't see a way forward. So they gathered together as a group in a room, began to pray. And in this prayer meeting, one of the missionaries, just in a moment of desperation and vulnerability, he just got up and he cried out to God. He confessed his sin. He confessed his discouragement, his doubt. And he just asked for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a fresh encounter with God. And this is how that missionary described what took place that night. Listen to how he, how he looks back and describes what God did. He says, just as on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place in one accord praying. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound as of a rushing and mighty wind, and it filled the house where we were sitting. Revival broke out in that room as people were captivated by the greatness of the glory of God, began confessing sin, calling out. And this night was later called the Korean Pentecost. It led to a massive gospel movement. And all the previous years before that, they hadn't seen a movement of Christ. But in the next year, over 50,000 Koreans came to faith. A few years later, 1911, that same missionary described that when he came to Korea, he couldn't find one evangelical Christian. This is five years after the Korean Pentecost. Five years later, there's over 250,000 Korean followers of Christ. Fast forward today in South Korea, the movement of the gospel is still radical. Though there's over 30% of the country are evangelical Christians. They're second only to the United States in terms of missionary force that they're sending out to with 27,000 Koreans that live globally for the cause of Christ. So why do I share that with you? Because this entire movement that literally changed the trajectory of a nation was released when they experienced a fresh encounter with the living God and were deeply provoked by the glory of God. They came to it in a weary and broken place. They looked up. They caught a vision of the king. And out of the ashes of discouragement came a great movement of God. What I love for us is that we don't have to go very far. A fresh encounter with the living God is waiting for us by the Spirit's power right here in his word. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. So the backdrop of this is he's going to mention in the first verse is this is the year when King Uzziah died. And why that's so significant for us to connect to this morning is that Uzziah had come to the throne at age 16, reigned for over half, a, over half a century. He brought a ton of benefits to the kingdom, really ushered in an era of peace and prosperity. So he's dead, and now Judah was without a king. And the great glory and national pride of the kingdom was at stake and facing an end. So it's in this backdrop of the place of weariness, of discouragement, that the prophet Isaiah has this vision. It says he saw the Lord. And I love the way John Calvin describes it. He says, God gave Isaiah in this moment, according to his capacity, the the ability to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. That's what's taking place in this moment. That God was giving Isaiah the ability to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. So the Bible says, Isaiah saw the Lord, but it was in a vision and it captivated him. This is my hope for us today. So let's look at what Isaiah saw, starting in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And I want you to do something with me. Right where you're at, I just want you to close your eyes. And we're going to attempt, in the best we can, I want us to envision this in our mind. And I'm going to guide us through it. So close your eyes. And I just want you to go into a big open space in your mind. Maybe it's those soccer fields across the street. Maybe it's just a more familiar place to you where it's wide open. And I want you to look up to the sky. And I want you to picture this. You look up and you see a giant throne. Imagine that in your mind. The throne goes up into the clouds. It's bright and beautiful like nothing your eyes have ever seen. You have nothing to compare it to. The legs of the throne stretch as far as you can see, filling every space in front of you. The train of the king's robe coming off the throne fill the entire space so there's no room for anybody to stand near him. When you look at him, he is so bright, it's hard to keep your eyes fixed on him. It's like looking into the sun. You have to turn your head away and close your eyes for a few minutes and then open them back up again. And then you look around the throne, you see these giant creatures and their names literally translate burning ones. Again, something like which you have no comparison in earthly terms. But these creatures, they have six wings, and you notice some of the wings are hiding their face as if the brightness of the king is too bright for them too. And some are hiding their feet. And the wings that are helping them fly are dozens of stories tall. Are you there yet? You seen this? And then what do these seraphims do? They begin to shout to each other. What are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these creatures are so large, when they shout, the entire throne room shakes from the sound of the voice. You can feel the ground underneath your feet, almost like you're in the middle of an earthquake. You can open your eyes. Did you begin to see it? Did you hear it? What were these giant, majestic creatures declaring when they got a view of the king? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In, these song, in this song of praise, the seraphim declare what they are looking at, his holiness. It's what makes God God. God's holiness is rooted in his utter uniqueness, his transcendence. He's incomparable. He can't be defined. He's set apart, separate in a class by himself. I love the way John Piper describes God's holiness. He says this, his holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. Call it his majesty, his divinity, his greatness, his value as the pearl of great price. In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in utter silence and reverence and wonder and awe. There may be yet more to know of God, but that will be beyond words. And as the foundations of the throne room are shaking, the seraphim sing this, the whole world is, the whole world is filled with what? His glory. Is if the holiness of God is his incomparable perfection, his glory is the manifestation of that holiness to the world. When, we, when God shows himself to be holy, what we see is his glory. And it says his, his glory won't just be seen in this room, not just in this city, not just in this country, but as Habakkuk 2.14 says, the whole earth will be filled with his glory of God as the water covers the seas. Probably about a year and a half ago, I was in a very difficult and unreached part of Africa where we have some members working. And I remember being there one evening, standing on the top of their house, overlooking the city. Really, really difficult place, part of the world. And looking over a city, over a million people next to no Christians, probably most of the Christians, almost all the Christians were in the house right beneath me. 
And I remember looking over, praying over the city, and just beginning to be overwhelmed by what's the seemingly impossibility of this task in front of us. Going, God, how are you going to do this? And the gospel is not welcome here. How is this going to happen? How is it? It just it felt impossible. Like, this is too big of a task. This is too tall of a mountain. I don't know how this is ever going to happen. And in that moment, I began to pray, and the Lord took me to Isaiah 6. And in that moment, uh, by, by God's grace, just got to see a vision, as almost as if a leg of the throne just dropped down right in the middle of the city. And God reminded me, I reign here too. And in that moment, my view of the greatness of God just grew, and I was reminded there's no place in the world there's no situation or circumstance in life where our king does not rule and reign. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to what? The glory of the Father. That's where all of this is going. And upon catching a glimpse of the greatness of God is what we see here in Isaiah. When he sees the greatness and the holiness of God, he's going to respond in two different ways in this passage. The first one is right here. So how did he respond when he caught that glimpse of the holiness of God? What does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when he sees the holiness of God, his response is, I'm unworthy. I am unworthy. I'm undone. Have you ever stood in front of something truly breathtaking, truly awe-inspiring, and the result was an inflation of your own ego? Maybe take it this way. Maybe you're standing in front of the ocean or in front of the mountains. Or maybe if this is your deal, a breathtaking piece of art. You ever done that and your first thought was how awesome you are? I totally believe it's possible for somebody to experience that. But by and large, the human response to experiencing something remarkable is not to feel great about yourself, but probably to feel very small. Isaiah's response when he takes in this incredible sight, this beautiful vision of the holiness of God, is I'm done. You're the king. I'm not even worthy of you. And when Isaiah comes into contact with the majesty and holiness of God, it wasn't his greatness that was exposed in that moment. It was his unworthiness. In light of God's infinite perfection, Isaiah became overwhelmed by his utter imperfection. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Then this scene takes a really beautiful turn when God reveals his holiness, his majesty. We see this scene take a different turn here. And Isaiah describes it this way. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And what did he say? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin, it's atoned for. We see something truly incredible as this seraphim comes to Isaiah with a coal, with a coal and touches his lips and says, Your sin's gone. Your guilt is gone. And in an instant, in this moment, Isaiah goes from never feeling more dirty, guilty, unworthy, to never feeling more loved, forgiven, and secure. That if what he got to take a glimpse of in that moment was the holiness, and the holiness of God is incomparable, what he experienced in that moment is his grace. And his grace is inconceivable. And in this moment, Isaiah's shame over his sin was confronted by the powerful grace of God. Now I want you to see what it does in Isaiah. Because what's the fruit of Isaiah experiencing both the glory and the grace of God? We see it in his second response. Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, here I am, send me. Even wait, I'm here, send me. So I want you to look at this response. In a matter of moments, he goes from, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm unclean, I'm unworthy, I'm, un I'm done. 
When he gets a beautiful vision of the holiness of God, I am not worthy. And he encounters the powerful grace of God. I'm here, I wanna go. When Isaiah encounters the glory of God and the grace of God, his response isn't just willingness, it's hunger. He isn't saying, I'm here if you need me. I'll consider it. Talk to me about it. I'll pray about it. He says, I'm here. I'm ready. Please use me. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Wherever you are, it's where I want to be. Whatever you're doing, that's what I want to do. Willingness just falls short to describe the cry of Isaiah's heart in this moment. It's glory hunger. And if I have one prayer for you, Citizens Church, in these days, it's that glory hunger will permeate your church. We have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we've been provoked by something great. So we need a fresh encounter with God to be provoked by his holiness creates a hunger for his glory. Because we know this about the people of God. When we're provoked by the greatness of God, it radically changes how we live. That when the people of God have been provoked by the glory of God, they live radically for the things of God. Because long before we were known for our institutions, we were known for how we lived. To live as a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples of Jesus. This is the flow of the spiritual life. It's how it's all intended to go. And I'll give you an example. This is one of my sabbatical. Uh, this was last year, 2018. I just had this goal that I really wanted to learn Arabic. And so I, and this is coming from a guy who spent, I don't know, over eight years in school trying to learn Spanish. And I probably couldn't even order off of a menu right now. But I just had it in my mind. I was like, I want to learn Arabic. I want to challenge myself. I want to do something different. So I'm on sabbatical. And so I went, I bought the Rosetta Stone app, you know, I just researched what's the best ways to learn a language. I didn't want to go sit in a classroom because that never agreed with me. And so I was like, I'm going to do this. Bought the Rosetta Stone app, put it on my iPad. Kids go to school. I'm sitting there at my kitchen counter. I open it up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give an hour a day to this and I'm going to dive in. So I do. And it starts walking me through the lessons. So I go day one. Okay, it's really challenging. I don't know if you've ever learned Arabic, but just pronouncing it, I would give it a shot here, but I would offend somebody just in my attempt of it. But I get it or try Okay, day two, give it a try. Day three, I get to the end of it. My wife's asking me, hey, how's it going? I was like, yeah, it's going. She's like, hey, you got any work? We're with some friends that night. And they were like, hey, how's the state of Arabic going? I was like, well, I'm, I'm trying to stay faithful to it. And they said, well, tell us a word. And I literally couldn't get one out. There was not even hello, nothing. I can recognize Arabic. Like if, I, if you popped up on the screen, I'd know, oh, that's Arabic. But I couldn't tell you what it says, even the most just simple of words. And so I just got, by day four, I was kind of like, man, I'm out. This is really tough. I'm not getting anywhere. This is hard. So fast forward a couple months, and we take a trip, a group to the Middle East, and we're there. Uh, we've got several of our people praying about going serving there long term. So we went with them. There's a team on the ground there. And so they, they took us out to do ministry in the city. And we went to the part of the city by the ocean where there's just a little bit more possibility of people speaking English. There's a college there. So they took us out, and they took us out in groups of two with a translator. And so we went out. In the city, and we're just walking along the seawall trying to find people to share the gospel. Where we start is asking them, hey, do you speak English? Because we obviously, our translator had knew the language, but we didn't any, and the purpose was, was for us to share the gospel. So we're walking, and, and so my uh, the translator and the other guy that's with me, they get into this conversation with this guy, and so they're going. So I just kind of step back, start praying, and then I see this guy standing over there fishing by the water, standing by himself. So I went over, and I was just like, Lord, do you want me to go talk to him? The answer is always yes. So I just went. And, uh, and I, the answer is always yes, by the way. If you ever want to ask that question, just don't ask it open-ended. And so I went over, I started talking to him, and uh, I asked him, I said, hey, do you speak English? He said, yes. So we started talking, exchanged names. We got there, his name was Sam L. And so I was really excited. I was like, this guy speaks English. Okay, here we go. I've got all my questions in mind. We start going. And it was probably 15 seconds into the conversation, I realized, I don't know why he told me yes. He does not speak any English. Very, very, very little. He speaks as much English as I do Spanish. And so we're, we start talking, but the, the, 
thing that was so hard is just, I got far enough in the conversation with him. I told him I was a follower of Isa. He told me he was a Muslim, and we start talking. He was really open to spiritual conversation. I could tell that. He was eager, sweet man. Uh, he, we were about the same age, and he wanted to have the conversation, but we both just hit the ceiling of language that we couldn't overcome. And so we kind of had this awkward moment. Where we're standing there, and I'm like, he really wants to talk about this. I really want to talk about this. There's nobody here to translate for us. They're way down there. He's not coming anytime soon. I didn't know what to do. I tried the Google Translate thing. It wasn't getting anywhere. And I was like, man, I just, okay, I can't, I can't go any further. And it just killed me inside. So I looked at him and said, hey, can I pray for you? And he looked at me and said, no, you can't. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to commit to praying for you. And I'm going to pray that as I go back, that the Lord would send over hundreds of people that do know the language are going to commit to be here and share the gospel with you. And he said, he just shook his head and said, thanks. I said, okay, great. And I went on, but you better believe when I got back to the, to the room that night, I pulled open my iPad and I had a fierce hunger to learn the language of Arabic. I wanted so bad to get back out on that street, to find him again and just have more ways and tools to be able to talk with him. I desired so much of, before there was no incentive, it was really difficult. Now I had plenty of incentive. I really wanted to learn that language. I really wanted to be able to talk to him. I really wanted to be able to share the love of Jesus. And this is the flow of the Christian life I'm talking about. That to be a disciple of Jesus means that we are actively making disciples of Jesus. There's just not another framework in the Bible to live by. It's the living out of your faith that creates a hunger for more faith. But sometimes we can get stuck in what I call that someday Christianity. We study the Bible, we come to church, we get involved, we build up relationships, we store up knowledge, all with the hope that someday God might use us. And we miss the fact that a crucial aspect to my being formed as the disciple is in my going to make other disciples. There isn't a category for waiting until we're ready or until you know enough to be used by God. It's on the journey of being used by God that true hunger for your own growth as a disciple really comes. That same year before 2018, the beginning of the year, I was setting my goals and for the year. And you know, you always just kind of your categories of goals, personal, financial, family, all that. And I got to just my my disciple goals, just what I want is me as me as a follower of Christ. And, and as I was praying through what those goals are, I just really became under deep conviction. And I just had to confess this to the Lord. He knew, but I was just confessing to the Lord, man, I have not led somebody to Christ uh, outside of my job, and I can't remember how long. So I had not led somebody to faith in Jesus Christ in an environment, situation, or scenario that didn't have anything to do with me as a pastor, and I can't remember how long. And so I set my goal for 2018. I wanted to lead somebody to faith as just Trevor Joy, the disciple. Not the pastor, not the staff member. I just wanted to lead somebody to faith as a disciple. And so it started a bunch of things. I mean, I just went after it and just got my neighbors together. We started prayer walking our neighborhood. Uh, we started just, I would just go to lunch by myself so I could talk to people, the waiter, waitress or waiter, uh, go to Home Depot, just go out with our mobilization team and, and start trying to share the gospel. And sure enough, I got to the end of 2018, and my goal actually never happened. Never happened. I didn't lose, I, tons of amazing conversations, never led one person to faith outside of my job that year. But I will say this, 2018 was a year of personal revival for me. Because such a crucial aspect of my growth as a disciple comes through making disciples. When we participate in and embody the life of a disciple, it's transformational. We can't miss this church. We sit in a Bible study or a home group or sit here on Sunday mornings and just store up in case we might need it someday. It's like a Christian version of prepping. We store up and store up in case there comes a day when it's needed. And, and all these environments are needed and necessary to grow as a disciple. And it might even be 
really earnest motives and desires to grow that drove you to it. But if you don't start living that faith out, that desire will soon be replaced by boredom, apathy, or pride. We are never intended to grow in our knowledge of God and his word for us alone because the gospel, these treasures were never intended to stay with us. If you want to experience real hunger for the word of God or the spirit's power, go pour yourself out and be used by God. When you get to the end of yourself and the limits of what you know, you'll be driven to the word for truth and your needs for help. We can't just listen or observe. We have to participate in the life of the disciple. It's not, not risky to listen to instruction. It's risky to live it out, to jump in yourself. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 10 when he said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will what? They'll find it. The promise of the Bible is that real life is found out there, not just sitting in the ear. We have to embody it. And a growing conviction I have for the Western church is that much of how we spend our days just falls short of how the Bible talks about the Christian life. That much of our experience of the Christian life has left us frustrated, disappointed, or bored. And why this is so important for us to get, if this, our heart is going to be lined with God's heart, then we're not just going to keep sitting here and soaking up. We're not just going to have a small view of God and his kingdom, but that throne room is going to get bigger as we go out. And the leg of the throne is not just going to be in this room, it's not just going to be in northern Frisco. It's not just going to be in southern Dallas. It'll be in China. It'll be in Syria. It'll be everywhere we go because our view of the greatness of God, the throne room of God, would extend to the entire world. That we would be so greatly provoked by the greatness of God that living and loving radically means we're willing to give our whole lives because this hunger won't be satisfied until his glory covers the earth like the water covers the seas, until every mouth and every neighborhood and every nation is filled with praise to our God. That's the New Testament church. We live and love radically from every neighborhood to every nation because everywhere we go, we see that throne and reminded that he rules and reigns over it all. We won't get there. We won't live like that until we're provoked by something greater. The holiness, the glory, the grace of God. So we have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we've been provoked by something great. Let's pray. Father, I just ask for this morning, whatever is standing in front of our view of you, God, would you remove it? And maybe that is something that we have placed as greater than you. Maybe that is something that has just uh, made us small and unapproachable to you. God, whatever that lie, whatever that thing is in front of us, ask about your spirit's power, you'd remove it from us today. God, would you give us a, a glimpse, just a view of your holiness, your beauty, your majesty, your glory. Would you give us a view of that today? And God, would our response not be, hey, we'll, man, that's amazing. We'll, we'll pray about it. We'll think about it. Would our response today be our heart cry, be a fierce hunger for the glory of God? Whatever it is, whatever it means for our life, whatever it means for today, whatever it means for my plans today, they all change, they all get laid down because we are so hungry for your glory to cover the earth like the water covers the seas. Whatever stands in our way today, God, we pray that you would take us out of the stands and put us into the game. We wanna be a part of it. We wanna live in the kingdom more than we talk about the kingdom. So God, would you do that? Would you accomplish that in our hearts today for your name and for your glory? Amen.